Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt keeps a baby alive for three hours. He had help from his sweater. I drag Phil down into the muck to wade through a smallpox epidemic. And after all that, we stumble from the bookshelf to the liquor cabinet. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. They did. I don't know, really. Like, I haven't really been watching that much. I haven't been watching much baseball either. I know that the Orioles are uh, leading the division right now. Are they? The AL East. Fucking the Orioles. Well, it's, it's such no- a hateable franchise. It, it's understandable. <laughs> they got such a nice ballpark, though. Camden Yards is yeah. like, that's one that I want to visit. It's it's nice. I'm. They have a nice logo. They do. I've always appreciated it. Like the bird. Um, I think my hatred of the Orioles like stems back to uh, just hit record, man. We'll start. Yeah, we've on. been recording. Yeah, we're, we're making podcasts. Oh, really? We're making yeah. a podcast making, right now. Yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> See, I never savage. really tell you when we're doing it. But oh, it's you caught start. me. Um. So yeah, no, I, I think my hatred of the Orioles started with uh, Cal Ripken Jr. I never really appreciated him. I remember distinctly that streak, the Iron Man streak yeah. that he was on. Yeah. And I, I I remember thinking to myself, I hope he pulls a calf muscle or something. No career ending stuff, but uh, you know, just so he misses one game. Yeah. Well, I don't think he ever did. He did, he has like the longest streak in baseball without an injury. Yeah, he took a day off like maybe 5 days after the the streak was broken, I remember. Okay. Um, and that was also a new story, but it was weird because I can't remember what year Cal Ripken was. Maybe look that up quickly. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it was right in the middle of the steroid, um, epidemic in baseball. And I feel like the, the media used Cal Ripken and after the lockout, right. in like 1994, the year the Expos were supposed to win the world series. Yeah. Um, it was like a feel good story for baseball. But yeah, then you yeah. also had like, you know, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Raphael Palmero just jacking home runs for the I first time. I was so in their sad when I heard that um, McGuire kind of was taking the stuff on yeah. the juice. Yeah, he, I don't know why, but I I always liked him. How old would you say you were when like that was going down? I guess I was like. Uh, Maybe 13, 14, 15. Oh, that's there. like that's like your innocence. Formative years of baseball. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I remember looking at him like they must be doing something, but also like Sammy Sosa was like kind of came out of nowhere. I feel like, but uh, Mark McGuire and Rafael Palmero and Barry Bonds, those Barry guys Bonds, are like yeah. great hitters, yeah. right? Natural so great hitters. You're like, oh, maybe they just figured something out and they started like launching home runs. At an enormous rate, but then you, if you look at pictures of them at that time, it's so obvious. It's obvious now to us, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, coming back to Ripken, uh, two thousand six hundred and thirty-two consecutive games. Um, that's a lot of games. Yeah. So divide that by one hundred and sixty-two. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. Like that's how many seasons he uh, he played consecutively. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, what's new in the world of Matt? Uh, 
much. Oh, well, I looked after my cousin's kid finally. You've done that. Okay, how did it go? Might as well talk about that. Um, It went uh, horribly for the first 20 to 30 minutes. Um, When his dad left for work, um, the kid just started um, screaming, scream crying, like terrified. And he would look up at me and just be like, "Ah," with like terror in his eyes. And then, but I'd be like, holding him and then he'd just wipe his nose and his mouth and his eyes all on my sweater i wore a sweater intentionally because i know like kids want to like grab onto you like that psychological experiment with right the wire monkeys and back in the day anyway side, side <laughs> okay. tension um and uh so it was like that for like 30 minutes and then i was like why don't i just take him for a walk and it was that weird day where it snowed Oh, like yeah. randomly in yeah. the in the beginning of May Snow out here May. in Ottawa. Um, so I got him out just in time, walked to the end of the block and back. And by the time I got him inside, I it's funny, I put the stroller in the foyer and then I try to like start taking him out and like pull back that that sunscreen thing on strollers. And um, anytime I try to pull back that screen, he would like reach up with his little cute one-year-old baby hand and like try to pull it back down i was like all right homie and so i just turned him around faced him towards the couch so i had like a clear line of sight and sat there for an hour and a half and watched him sleep oh yeah it was awesome because i was just like i think it was a much longer nap and the parents probably had like a tough time putting to bed at night but uh whatever man I needed I needed that sanity. So. so the first 30 minutes, he kind of expended all his energy. Yeah. And then had a nice, long, easy nap for Matt. Yeah. And That's then when good. he woke up, I uh, fed him uh, raspberry yogurt Yum. and uh, uh, something else, water. And <laughs> just Water's like, good. And then he totally warmed up to me. We were playing. Of I pulled course. out a book. And, and uh, yeah, it was good times for like an hour after that. And his mom came home. That's great. So yeah. it went well. Yeah, yeah. No injuries. Uh, not that I can see. Nothing on the surface, so that's good. When's round two? Um, I told his mom that any time, and uh, same thing to his dad. I'm seeing them both on uh, Sunday, so yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, how is your better half um, coming along? How's the uh, How's the oven? When you don't think her belly can grow out anymore, it grows out a little bit more. So um, we're watching that, and uh, she's definitely eating much more than me and more frequently as well. So I'm just trying to keep shoveling food into her, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, no, things are progressing well. So now there's sometimes a phenomena <clears throat> where the father uh, or the parent who's not carrying the baby gains weight as well. Have Have you experienced this? Um, a little bit, but, uh, people are going to hate me out there, but, uh, we eat pretty healthy. So my thing that I'm actually going to try to start doing, I didn't tell you about this. Uh, this is actually spontaneous. Um, I'm going to try to like reduce glu- uh, gluten for yeah. a little bit, like so let, once every three days kind of thing. Like less breads. Yeah. Yeah. I'm finding I'm getting like, um, sugar crashes from it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's not good. Like after you have like cereal and toast in the morning and then you like crash at like 1030 or whatever. Yeah. I can't get these show notes out if That's I'm right. doing that. That's right. <laughs> so what's new with you, bud? Uh, it's been a very busy week. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I am exhausted. I am very tired. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, you know, this region um, of the world has experienced flooding. 
yeah. uh, over the last couple of weeks. It kind of peaked last weekend, kept us on our toes. Luckily, we were okay at the house, but uh, some friends, colleagues experienced it. Um, we couldn't go into town, into Ottawa uh, for a couple of days. You know, it's just kind of been on a, a level of alert. You know, nothing serious, but just enough to kind of keep you checking your phone late in, like, you know, into the witching hours of the night, making sure everything's okay. I've definitely checked the weather a lot more than I ever have. Mm. Uh, today, it luckily, is a bright, sunny, warm day, but they are announcing rain uh, tomorrow, and the, next tomorrow day. and the next day. So, yeah. you know, hopefully the levels of water won't go up. Um, it's yeah. the only thing we're talking about in the region. It's the only thing the media is um, covering, which is great. Um, I talked to so many people in the elevator of my apartment building about it. It's like just out there. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's concerned and everyone's thoughts and prayers, if that's what you do, are being sent out to uh, those affected. Yeah. And the thing about these sorts of situations is a lot of people, a lot of volunteers rush to help at the beginning. And that's great. Mm. Uh, As the weeks kind of go on, there's less volunteers that just can go out for a variety of reasons. And what I'm expecting to happen is once the water levels do go down, people are allowed back into their homes, that they're going to have, uh, you know, a rough bout ahead of them as well. So it's it's not a short kind of lived thing. It's a long thing. On our Twitter, I've been trying to, to send out some of the more relevant uh, news stories, uh, communicate that with our followers on there. There's a lot of news stories out there, but there's some that give you you know, the same kind of key facts over and over again. So the ones I send out are more personal stories. Um, but it's not just our region. We have to kind of remember that. Like the West Island of Montreal is Dude, it's across flooded. the entire country. Yeah. I remember um, I heard uh, in Cache Creek, which is in British Columbia, they lost their, like, fire marshal, like the head of their fire department, oh. who was out um, um, measuring the uh, river levels. Um, just swept them away. Just swept them away. And it's the first sort of instance of like flooding in cash Creek since like they were keeping records back in the gold rush times, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's taking it, it's taking its toll. So I it's think weird. It's like sweeping across the whole country. Like the, yeah. it's like the prairies as well. And it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. So I think uh, my week has been dotted with that in the background and just really busy, you know, getting work done and doing whatever. Um, but yeah, I, you know, really tired. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, um the it, it's almost as if the whole city and the whole region is kind of exhausted. Yeah. Um, because there has been that's one of the, the some of there's silver linings in this. Like the entire region has mobilized just regular volunteers and you see them in the media and they're like, you know, like fifty five, sixty year old like men and women who are, you know, maybe retired or something. And they're just they're not just helping their friends, they're helping just that person on that block, you know, there's also other stories of people taking um, those affected into their homes and all that is like, it leaves you with a warm, fuzzy feeling. But what Phil's talking about is um, like volunteer fatigue as well. Right. Yeah. Where, um, and I don't know, there's, there's the responses from different levels of government has been spotty and mixed at best. And I haven't been really inspired by Trudeau's comments either. So I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of people who are going back to their homes and, they're going to have a long road ahead of them. And I don't know how many, how much support, especially financially is going to be there. Yeah. You know, the, the premier of Quebec, uh, Quia has opened up a fund 
mm. uh, to help some flood victims. Um, you know, it's really hard to say right now what the financial impact is going to be. I don't think anybody has a very accurate estimate. Yeah. Once the water levels come down, I think they're going to be able to to analyze that a bit closer. Regardless of whatever amount is put out there by provincial or federal governments, the the memories, the personal belongings, that sort of stuff that gets ruined in floods. Literally washed um, away in some Literally cases, washed yeah. away. Uh, those things, you know, you can't put a price on. And those are the kind of uh, stories that we're going to start hearing in the media, um, hopefully a bit more. Mm. Um, you know, there there was one article that I tweeted out that, uh, you know, kind of said the floods is one of probably one of the worst natural disasters to to live through because the water rises quickly uh, and you never know when it's going to stop rising and then it recedes slowly. So it's a long road. It's not, you know, I don't think anybody was in as immediate danger as like a forest fire sort of mm. scenario, but definitely their property took a hit. Um, you know, just looking at aerial images, there's tons of homes that are just, you know, completely yeah. underwater. And I, I you know, I'm for, like, we're fortunate enough not to, to be in a flood zone and not yeah, to have our home. you're in high ground. You're up in like some mountainous sort of yeah. terrain, right? Uh, yeah. But there are people, you know, within, you know, a five minute drive who, who definitely got hit and, um, you know, my better half is part of um, the community around here, does a lot of um, work in the community. And, you know, she's she's starting to hear those stories of, you know, people just being really tired of living on a family member's couch. You know, it's been a week or so. You want to go home. Yeah. And but, then the home that you're going back to is not the home that you left in the first place. Oh, well, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, but uh, I think we do have to stay positive and uh, cheery and look forward to certain things. I know that was that was kind of you know. No, it's um, we weren't actually anticipating having that conversation. We were kind of going to talk about baseball, and then yeah. like, we started talking about the flood because yeah. honestly, that's all people have been talking about here, and justifiably so. So I'm actually glad we had that conversation. I think it's important to have the conversation. I think it's important also just to acknowledge that you know there are a lot of people going through very difficult times in our immediate surroundings geographically. So we don't need to think very far these you know we have stuff going on in our backyard that can that can you know call us to attention um definitely you know if um if you have a story uh that you want to share with us about your experience of the flood we'd uh, we'd love to hear from you um if you know i know the red cross is taking donations yeah uh, i was going to mention that too the red cross is taking donations there's some private uh companies as well that are willing to match your donations so check that out the one that i know of uh is three brewers pub down in uh, on Bank in Wellington and Ottawa, they're going to match um, donations taken over the weekend. Oh which, wow! Yeah, which is you know a pretty good, uh, pretty. Maybe good that thing. commenter from Norway can <laughs> send a couple of heroes our way. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah, but uh, we shouldn't yeah. be eating Hawaiian pizza or something. Yeah, or is, uh, was that Iceland? Yeah, that, that was Iceland. On that positive note, we're going to talk about plagues today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So before, so I think uh, let's 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 move this intro along. Um, <coughs> The show is called uh, Semi-Intellectual Musings. Um, We address, obviously, as we just have, some serious topics, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, The show is intended to provide an overview of social science, humanities, and arts, um, as well as engage with the published world and put that into conversation with your everyday life. Uh, We do it through interviews. We do it through book reviews. Uh, we do it through uh, some research on particular things that interest us and that we would find uh, that or that we hope uh, that you find interesting. Yeah, like for example, on today's episode, it's based on a book that I read two years ago that I bought at a used bookstore kind of on a whim because it was a dollar. And 
it's going to be um, a pretty interesting topic. And for the last couple of days, I've been doing some extra research on it, writing up notes, and I'm kind of feeling like I'm in grad school again. So it's uh, really fun. So this podcast for me personally is about re-engaging with academics and with uh, thinking and preparing and presenting. And I, uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode. So Matt and I put an awful lot of work into this podcast. We've been bringing it to you uh, on an hour-long format twice a week for the last uh, three, four weeks now. Mm. Um, so we, we we have a good time together doing it. Uh, we'd like to hear if you're having a good time listening to it. And you can do that by uh, via Twitter. And we are found at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's at the SimPod. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. We have a website that is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes and on Stitcher and other podcatcher apps that you can freely download. Uh, please leave us ratings and reviews. They help the show. They help us, uh, you know, produce something that is quality that uh, you want to hear. So send us your stories. Send us your critiques. Uh, be mean. Be nice. Be whatever. Just uh, tune in, I guess. Keep it classy. Keep it classy. Let's uh, let's get on there. Let's start. Let's do it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, Matt has been uh, preparing some stuff around uh, epidemics, particularly around smallpox and cholera. Uh, it, it sounds really interesting. I haven't been involved in the research behind it, but Matt's going to walk us through, and I'm sure I'm going to be able to make some connections as we go. Uh, so, Matt, why don't why don't you kick us off? Where what are you talking about today? And you know, give us a give us a historic rundown before we get into the the meat of it. Okay. Thank you, Phil. Um, so we're talking specifically about smallpox and the out, the last outbreak in uh, Montreal in 1885. Um, wasn't actually the last case of smallpox, but we'll get to that later um, in Canada. Um, but I wanted to talk about this uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I think it's a really interesting historical example of public health and epidemiology and the development of both. So like, you can see through this example from 1885, like literally the development of public health systems. Um, and I think it's also, there's so many fascinating things about this, but I think it's also fascinating from a Canadian perspective because it's all about French-English uh, relations and religion, um, Catholic-Protestant. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting points that I know Phil would love to pick apart. Yeah, yeah so why don't we start... Um what what's your main source for 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 reading? Uh, like why why are you talking to us about this now? <laughs> Thanks again, Phil. Um, that was the thing I forgot to talk about. Um, so I picked up this book. It's by Michael Bliss, B L I S S, and it's called Plague: uh, Story of Smallpox in Montreal. 
Um, he, uh, Michael Bliss is a history professor at University of Toronto. Um, and this book was published in 1991. Um, and it's just a really detailed history of this one year and this one epidemic. But he also does a great job of pulling in the context. So we'll kind of delve into the historical overview of smallpox itself and then um, jump into um, Montreal and then kind of talk around all the larger issues. Could you give us a rundown of an epidemic? Mm-hmm. Where, where, what is kind of the historical context of an epidemic? Okay, so this history that I'm going to give you is actually the history of smallpox itself. Um, there's been many epidemics, obviously, through human history. And um, with most epidemics, it's uh, the transmission from animals to humans, whether it's domesticated animals or bats are a really common transmitter of um, disease. Um, And it's when the virus or the bacteria jumps from the animal host to the human host and transforms into the human sort of form that an epidemic really sparks out. So Smallpox itself can be traced back 10,000 years. So that's kind of where archaeologists would um, position the domestication of animals and farming and and settlements. Um, So as soon as we settled down, we started getting um, things like smallpox. Um, Smallpox itself comes from cows. Um, Cowpox is is a common um, cousin, I suppose. Um, Another um, older example is from a 3,000-year-old mummy, is uh, Ramses V. Um, Archaeologists have tested the uh, skin and uh, found traces of uh, smallpox scars on it. Um, There was a plague in Greece in 430 during the Peloponnesian War. Um, That's 430 BC. Um, BCE, actually. Um, That is just a tangent um, of mine because I did archaeology, but um, we no longer do BC and AD. It's um, before Common Era is BCE and Common Era, so is CE. So anyway. Um, And then there was another similar plague that swept across um, the Roman Empire from 165 to 180. So it was, uh, what is that, 15 years? And it went across the entire stretch of the Roman Empire. And my personal hypothesis is this is one of the things that kind of chopped down the pillar of the Roman Empire and led to its downfall. Oh, interesting kind of theory about that one. Um, now, the, the, those are kind of what we would consider Western uh, mm. cases of it. Uh, has the East um, been in, afflicted, or is this traditionally like a Western sort of uh, disease? So like most, thing, most things uh, in anthropology, we uh, look at the colonial implications, and that's a perfect little segue. So smallpox is, a, um, like many of the diseases, was chronicled, discovered, treated, um, inoculations even were developed um, centuries before the Europeans got a hold of them. Um, so the earliest um, written documentation of uh, uh, smallpox and its treatment is from an Indian medical text in the 4th century, um, common era. And um, there's also a description from a Persian text in the 9th century. Um, India and China both developed inoculation techniques um, in the 11th century. Um, and it took until the 1700s for inoculation, like mid-1700s, for inoculation to really kind of take hold in Europe. Wow. So it, when you're talking of smallpox, is this um, 
kind of the word that comes to my mind is picot in French. Mm. Is that the same thing or are you talking about something else? Yeah, and that's why I thought this topic would be especially interesting to fill because you're from Montreal, is that? Outside of Montreal, uh, yeah, but Quebec. So is it the suburbs of Montreal? Because they uh, come into play uh, too, in this. Yeah, no, it's too far away from to be considered a suburb. How far? Yeah. Sorry, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's like a two-hour drive outside of Montreal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so you're from Quebec then. Yeah, from yeah, Quebec. Okay. Um, so, yes, it's it's a French word. Um, in uh, French-Canadian, like French, um, they use that term. Say it again. Picot. Picot. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and it means prick or sting. Okay. Um, and then the actual, um, they, like the first part of the word, they would call it virola uh, picot. Um, and virola was coined by Gregory of Tours in 581. So quite early on, the Europeans knew about smallpox, but they had no treatment until the 1700s. Um, so obviously this came over into the New World with a whole host of other diseases. And that history is lengthy and probably deserves its own episode. Now, what I always find interesting about these sorts of things is knowing who influential people had these diseases because some of this stuff when when it's read about or when we read about it always kind of focuses on quote-unquote the commoner quote-unquote the farmer but i'm sure that peppered throughout history are people of importance political or otherwise who have contracted these diseases right uh, am i wrong about the the case for smallpox well like i would Honestly, man, I would actually argue the opposite because if a royal person got smallpox, they got a very specific disease that was chronicled by doctors. They would get a whole bunch of treatment and historians would write about it. Whereas for the commoner, it was just disease swept or pestilence swept across the countryside and they would just sort of be left at that. But in terms of the heavy hitters who got smallpox, um, uh, let's see, Queen Elizabeth I in 1562 um, Mary the second uh, was killed from smallpox in 1692. Uh, Louis the fifteenth in 1774, and Abraham Lincoln, while he was delivering the Gettysburg Address, actually had smallpox um, festering in his system, and he had a small case of smallpox like a few weeks later. Wow, he didn't succumb to that though, did he? No, but he was left with uh, scars. Um, so the same year that Louis the fifteenth died um, from smallpox in 1774. Louis XVI, uh, was inoculated. So this was like the first, in France at least, the first showy inoculation. And then it started trickling down amongst the upper classes and the nobility and eventually got to the middle classes and so on. But it took a long time for inoculation to actually set in amongst like the general population. And one of the reasons is, is because we lacked the public health infrastructure to actually transmit inoculations to the wide population. Right. And is this a case that is similar to that of uh, what you would term uh, in the day lepers? Uh, people who were infected looked very strange. Um, mm. You know, they were kind of outcasted. There were attempts to geographically separate those infected uh, from others. Is this something that also happens with smallpox? You would be socially ostracized, I imagine, because you would have scars all over your body, but particularly right. your hands and face. So those are the things that are hard to cover up. So people would wear gloves and uh, high-collared shirts and things like this to try to cover up scars from things like smallpox. Um, before we sort of 
you know, focus in on Montreal. I just have um, this kind of thing that came up in the research that I didn't know about. But um, peasants, as you say, also had their own sort of folk remedies for them. And they, uh, the peasants in Europe were actually doing inoculations before inoculations were known in, in the nobility. So wow. I found that um, they would call it... Um, Peasants would send their children to play with other children who had chickenpox and smallpox in the hope that they would catch a milder form. And they would call this the kindly pox. Another technique that they would use is to buy scabs off of smallpox victims in their neighborhood and um, rub them over their body. And that would be um, like a pretty crappy version of inoculation. So these are kind of homemade recipes for i guess preventing uh in infection mm-hmm. essentially yes and the the peasantry let's say would use these remedies but they weren't known amongst the nobility because the nobility didn't really know what was going on in the fields but um before we move on uh two key figures that should be mentioned um is mary wortley montague in england and cotton mather in the same year in 1721 um, both uh, inoculated themselves and then spread inoculation amongst, again, the upper classes, the upper crust. They got to be inoculated first. And that plays a role in the Montreal story for sure. Interesting. Um, what uh, Another thing that comes up uh, repeatedly in my own kind of readings of history is that war and outbreaks seem to have a common thread. Um, what What's that What's that thread with smallpox, if there is any? Um, well, so the 1700s were the was the century, I suppose, of inoculation and the slow spread of inoculation. The 1800s were when more wider populations were being inoculated. So in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 to uh, yeah, in 1870, sorry, um, there was a pandemic that was uh, triggered of smallpox. That lasted for five years and literally swept across Europe. So these soldiers who were returning home, but also returning to homes across Europe because they were drawn from many different nations. It was one of the first continental kind of conflicts. Um, They kind of spread the pandemic. And then you had the first continental pandemic. What we're talking about with Montreal is going to be a localized pandemic. But it's almost like that was... um, yeah, it's kind of how conflict and disease, like another classic example is the Spanish flu after World War One, right? But, right. Uh, I think, like, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. Neither uh, am I. <laughs> but human-to-human contact is, as you said, is one of the ways that smallpox is, is, is transmitted. So if you're having, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers from one part of the world invade or come into another part, you can expect that there'll be, you know, some of them transmitting those those diseases either through clothing or whatever. Now, smallpox is different than cholera, to my understanding. Mm. Cholera is something that's kind of spread through through sewage or uh, bad water. Um, um, yeah. Can we? We'll talk about cholera in a second. I just all had right, a few, getting ahead of you. Yeah, getting ahead. All right, slow down, Phil. I'm going slow. Um, Okay, so I wanted to kind of read one quote from this book by Michael Bliss yeah. uh, that describes uh, smallpox, like the um, the symptoms and what would uh, what would happen to you. Um, let's see. Uh, so the mask of smallpox was a reeking, super eighteen swollen mass of 
seared flesh. Smallpox was a reeking, supporting, swollen mass of sear fresh, seared flesh. Wow, that's even hard to say for me. There's, there's a so lot we'll of leave that for there. a sec. Um, so as you know, the soldiers transmitting it across Europe is one way, but also the medical techniques of treatment um, was another way that kind of spread smallpox. So purging and bleeding of sores was quite common. So they would just sort of pierce the boils and like seep it out. Oh. And, you know, they didn't have latex gloves back then. Right, yeah. So that would spread um, throughout the healthcare population, whatever healthcare population actually existed at that right, time. Right, right. Um, so this was one of the leading causes. I think it was the leading cause of death in the 18th century. Um, every seventh child in Russia... Uh, born, died of smallpox in the uh, 18th century, um, killed about 400,000 Europeans each year in that century, um, including five reigning European monarchs. Um, most people became infected during their lifetimes, and about 30% of these people who got infected died of smallpox. Wow. So it was, um, there was nothing, and then when inoculation came on, that's when things started to change. Um, so... Before we move on to Montreal, we should note, um, and you have it there in front of you, Phil, um, in 1849, uh, 13% of all Calcutta deaths were due to smallpox. Um, and between 1868 and 1907, there is approximately 4.7 million deaths from smallpox in India alone. Between 1926 and 1930, there was 979,000-odd cases of smallpox with a mortality rate of 42.3%. And if you think about those dates, we're talking about Montreal in 1885 as being the last outbreak in Canada. And then you look at India and you see those sorts of mortality rates. Wow. And, like, I mean, even going uh, all the way to 1930, even though there's just shy of a million cases, um, you know, that's, that's, there's something important happening there. You know, I, I don't think a million cases of uh, polio would go unnoticed, um, but I, I don't remember reading that in history. I don't, I don't remember hearing that the smallpox around until the 1930s. Yeah, and there's, um, I'm sure by now there's books that are written on it, so if anyone's listening, they can read more about this. But I just wanted to throw that out as just something to think about before we start talking about Montreal, you know. So, all right. Well, let's dive into Montreal. What what makes the Montreal case uh, interesting? Why 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 focus in on the Montreal case? So, what's one thing that's interesting about it is that it was so late, eighteen eighty five. So they had a fully developed uh, newspaper uh, system that would comment on the smallpox outbreak uh, that lasted basically from the beginning of the break of spring until winter came at the end of um, eighteen eighty five. And after that, it was kind of wiped out. Um, so they had the newspaper industry. They had w the start of a public health system with um, sanitation officers and record keeping. Um, so the lateness of it actually makes it interesting from a historical perspective to study because there's a lot of documentation to like dig through. And that's what Michael Bliss actually really does well in this book. It's full of newspaper um, clippings and, and records and statistics. So you would really enjoy that as well. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm a fiend for the historical newspaper record. Um, yeah. So you mentioned cholera, and that's where we should start because yeah. in Montreal had an outbreak of smallpox basically from uh, 1870 through the 1870s. 
Um, but that was just one of many contagious diseases that were just swarming around the city every summer, basically. Um, and cholera was actually the real fear. And even though cholera actually only left India in 1817. So it's a relatively new disease to the Western world. Right. And I'm going to say, uh, I'm taking a stab at this, but 1832 for Montreal cholera outbreak. Oh, really? Is yeah, that, yes, is that right? yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting because there was a cholera outbreak in 1831 and 32, um, both in the North America and Europe. So you can t- see how many people are kind of going back and forth transmitting these diseases. And that's one of the things is the movement of people that has actually transmits diseases. Yeah, the newspaper reports from the 1830s, um, Kingston, Brockville, York, Toronto, uh, all were very keen to to talk about cholera numbers. There was uh, a weekly paper in Brockville that uh, would publish uh, a little table about the number of infections, number of deaths um, of cholera uh, overseas and domestically. Um, it became kind of like a scanning item. People would... I guess, potentially turn to the newspaper and see, oh, you know, Brockville's not doing too bad, but Perth, oh boy. Uh, you know, York, look at uh, how many numbers they got in York going on. So yeah, cholera was very much in the minds of our, you know, contemporary uh, figures of, of the 1830s. Um, but call, like, I don't think you want to talk to us about cholera. You want to talk to us about smallpox. Uh, so, so before we move into smallpox, uh, what are you thinking, Matt? What do you, what do you? Okay. So, at the time, people were so afraid of cholera. Cholera is transmitted differently than smallpox. Yeah. Um, cholera is transmitted primarily, it's a waterborne disease. Um, so it's like stinky sewage water is what is going to bring cholera, but also um, uh, defecation, like human waste. So if you don't uh, wash your hands after, so like hand washing before you like go cook something, that wasn't common in the 1800s. Yeah. And you see in the 1830s, beginning 1840s, particularly in Upper and Lower Canada, uh, a direct correlation to when uh, infrastructure becomes built uh, for sewage and water, mm-hmm. the levels of cholera just go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it is a sanitary disease. Mm. And something just to give the listeners something to chew on. I hope you're not eating right now because this is a bit of a disturbing quote. So, so just a bit of a disclaimer there. Um, this is a description of what it's like to have cholera. Apparently, normal and healthy people would start vomiting and defecating uncontrollably, sometimes at work or in the street. Putrid liquids poured from bodies racked by spasms and cramps. Dehydration caused eyes to sink into their sockets, skin to whistle and wrinkle. The voice, too, became low and husky. The body turned black and blue as capillaries ruptured. For more than half the victims, death came in one or two days, sometimes in only a few hours. Sometimes the bodies spurted poisonous, aged, withered, and died seemingly in minutes, the way they do in horror movies today. How is that? Uh, I, I'm, That's why we need a sewage department. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I'm okay, so I'm, I'm between mortified and extremely interested. Mm. I, I, because, you know, if something that drastic is going on, you're noticing. You know, like if that's happening in your community, you know that's happening. Um, mm. But that's mortifying that that's kind of the effects on the body. Mm. And that's, as I say, that's just one of many. There's also like typhoid, there's scarlet fever right. was a yeah. thing as well. Yeah. So there's um, smallpox was like when you read the newspaper articles, it's like they're freaked out, but they're not as freaked out as they should be. 
in mm, some ways, right? right? Yeah. And they just spend more time like blaming, you know, uneducated French people. And we'll get into that in a second. Okay. Yeah, let's get into okay. that. So just some quick stats before okay. we get uh, going. Um, between, as I said, between 1872 and 1880, there was a, a sustained outbreak. Um, but between 1881 and 85, there was no outbreaks, which was strange to the people. So the irony is, is that people stopped getting inoculated because they're like, oh, we, we beat smallpox. It's not coming back, right? Everything's all good. So that kind of set the stage for people who were not quite inoculated yet. So like young children who would be like teenagers when the 1885 outbreak started. Um, so... In 1885, we're talking about 3,000 deaths in Montreal and the surrounding suburbs around the city. Um, just briefly, the last case in Canada was 1962, and the last case in the world was 1977 in uh, Somalia. Wow, 1962. Yeah. yeah, and they had a real, like, let's eradicate this from the world, and they actually did it. Like, it's like acid rain, like how we stopped acid rain. Smallpox is like that as well. Have we stopped acid rain? Yeah. That and the know. hole in the ozone layer, I think. We, we've plugged that? No, no, I don't think that one, that but doesn't... acid rain for sure. I remember well, I... hearing that. Yeah. It was um, the catalytic converter and um, the the aerosol cans that we stopped uh, producing. I don't know about that. Mm, Google it. Yeah, I think we we might have stopped calling it that, but I don't know. Um, All right, so let's move on. Because cholera is transmitted through the water and a lot of contagious diseases are like that, people at the time either believe sort of what we believe now, that it's like human-to-human -human contact, and those people are called contagionists, so they believe that diseases are contagious, whereas other branches of quote-unquote science um, believe that it was either transmitted through the air or through various other mediums, right? And I'll spare you the details on that, but know that there's like what we know as like contagious disease theory. Um, that was starting in the mid-1800s, because they had a lot of contagious diseases to study and learn from. So that's kind of the stage. And um, R.M. Ross, he's one of the key players in it. He's on the side of the anti-vaccination movement. There's a, a couple of other... Um, can you see on the page there in front of you, On the if you flip over to the next page? You, I need you to pronounce a French uh, last name, sorry. Um, the first one at the top, the mayor's name. Can you pronounce Beau that name? Beaugrand? Yeah, thank you. And uh, Alderman Harry, uh, Henry Gray, so Bogrand, is the mayor, and uh, the alderman is the newly appointed sanitation chief, so he's the head of the health department. Um, but then there's this R.M. Ross character, who is, um, he's kind of on the fringes. So um, I have some quotes from him, but basically, um, during the um, abolitionist movement, he was a fervent abolitionist, so he was considered himself a radical. He got a, again, quote-unquote medical degree um, from a, a character, I think it was in Philadelphia, but he studied hydrotherapy, and that's the idea of the healing power of water. So these are the people who would say, like, go to the ocean and get some fresh air, and that will hear you. So what he believed essentially is that, um, like a holistic approach, that like healthy living... Um, abstaining from certain things because Puritanism and the um, the uh, like prohibition is coming up in the next decades. Um, so these kind of characters are around. He was one of these kind of guys. Um, but he saw smallpox outbreak in Montreal and the French population who were less inoculated than the English Protestant population. Um, he glommed onto that and just ran with it. 
Okay, so I found this quote. So as I said, he wrote quite often in the papers and he would write these commentaries. And this is just one such commentary from May 19th. Um, so he knew that uh, the majority of doctors didn't believe uh, or believed in vaccination. And he knew that he was a bit on the fridge. So this is what he said. Majorities have no monopoly of truth. The majority of the medical profession for 40 years opposed Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood. The majority bled the people for a century. The majority mercurialized the people till they became walking barometers. In short, the majority has usually been an error. So this is the main opponent to vaccination. And he was the one who was drumming up the sentiments amongst the French Catholic populations of Montreal. So the French Catholic populations were listening to um, the Ross guy mm -hmm. saying, yeah. no, we don't want to be controlled by uh, some sort of state authority, mm -hmm. if I understood correctly. But you, but, you know, just before we, we, we continue, you, you, you said something relatively interesting. You said the French population aren't getting vaccinated. So what kind of started that? Why did they decide not to receive the vaccine in the first place? There's a myriad of reasons, but um, I think it was largely, like, if you, like, broadly speaking, it was in opposition to the English sort of powers in central Montreal, the Protestants and the English. Um, they were suspicious of these authorities coming in and sort of forcing them. And the way they encouraged people to get vaccinated <laughs> was dragging them out of their houses. Um, and if they, if they refused to leave or barring them into their house and putting up these things called placards, which are, um, I'll throw some, a bunch of pictures about this on there um, in, I don't know, in the post somehow. Uh, but um, there are like these yellow warning signs that said like, beware uh, smallpox is in this residence. So people would tear them down, would get into fights with police officers, and it became less about the smallpox and more about opposition to English Protestant authority in Montreal. So smallpox became that issue, that wedge issue that continued uh, the divide that already kind of existed. Mm -hmm. And what I think Michael Bliss does masterfully in this book, the exact same year, um, Louis Riel uh, was on trial, uh, had his rebellion, was put on trial, and then executed all within in 1885. So um, he uses this example and uses stories from the newspapers to kind of juxtapose, juxtaposition or juxtapose um, the sort of formation of Canadian nationhood, like racially, ethnically, and linguistically. And the Métis, for those who don't know, and I encourage you to Google and Wikipedia away on that, um, it's a very interesting story, but they were like mixtures of French um, First Nations, English, like it's kind of a mixture of people who settled in Manitoba. Um, but Louis Riel led them on a religious-inspired revolution, um, trying to create almost like the free state of Manitoba. I think it was called Red River. Um, so... Do you have anything on Louis Riel? I got some other stuff, but. Well, inter I was just going to say, interestingly, uh, May 15th, uh, 1885. So this podcast will air May 15th, uh, 2017. But May 15th, 1885 is when uh, Louis Riel surrendered uh, to the authorities uh, shortly before he was uh, executed. Ah, oh, look at you um, go, Phil. Yeah. Just one of <laughs> well those, done. Just one of those uh, uh, quinky dinks. Uh, but I, th I believe he was executed in November, um, if I remember right. 
So yeah, so Luriel is connected to um how do you say that word the ultramontane? Is that how bad of a pronunciation is yeah, that? Yeah, ultramontane. Yeah, ultramontane. Sure. So the ultramontane in Quebec were conservative Catholics. So they were um not loyal to France or Quebec necessarily, but they're loyal to the papacy. And they were that conservative. There is also a very conservative branch of the Protestants. They're almost evangelical Protestants. Um, so those were the extremes of the religion. But then you also had, I imagine, everyday Montrealers in the middle. And if you're a French-Canadian or a Quebecer, um, then you're kind of in this position where you have a state authority coming in and boarding up your house and putting up a placard. And everybody in your neighborhood knows that you have a disease and you need to be shunned. So people really resisted this. Well, you know, I think you're leaning into this, but I'm going to kind of preempt you a bit. And um, I think the history of epidemics, including smallpox, cholera, is also the history of state formation. Uh, It's the history of local sanitation, for sure. Um, You know, but when you look at the efforts that went into containing, separating, putting up placards, informing, you know, holding town halls, those sorts of things. Um, the city of Montreal, which was which became a city in 1832, um, becomes this epicenter of state power, becomes this epicenter of state formation. And that relies on a several several different factors. It relies on something called population to be able to to act upon. It requires something uh, in terms of statistics and numbers to be able to act and and use those for various ways. Um, now, the flip side to that is that the anti-vaccination kind of camp uses the same statistics uh, that are collected from the state authority to justify not being vaccinated, whereas the state's authorities is saying, well, you should, right? Yeah, so the anti-vaxxers would say you get sicker if you ingest this sort of so-called poison. So inoculation is taking a small amount of the virus or the bacteria into your system and you the hope is that you develop a mild case and then now you're immune to the worst case um so people were saying well if you go into the hospital then you're going to catch like the bad case of smallpox and all the hospitals are run by protestants and protestants therefore are going to give you the bad smallpox um i think it's interesting that you say state formation so in montreal it wasn't coherent. So the sanitation department that they used um, in 1885, for the year 1885, they gave it to the lowest bidder, this new company that promised to come in and do it for cheaper and do a better job than the guy they've been using for like two decades or so. Um, And they were in charge of the daytime pickup. So Montrealers, when they're going out to work and coming home and stuff, they were seeing the trash and blaming this one particular company. Um, Whereas the one they've been using in the past um, they did it at night. So, like, it was this ad hoc sort of arrangement. The guy they appointed, um, Henry Gray, to head the public sanitation department, um, he tried to quit, like, two weeks into his term because he saw how much of a mess the whole department was. And the council and the citizenry, because he was loved on both sides, the French and the English side, refused to accept his resignation because he was a pharmacist. And they're like, this guy should know something, right? But... They didn't really even have a Department of Public Health for like until the last like decade of epidemics that were going around. So it's like a very 
ad hoc formation of the state. And it's almost like, unfortunately, trial and error. And this was a big example of a huge error. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's, and I think it's a continuing conception that cities, uh, provinces, territories, even on the level of the federal uh, nation, know what they're doing all the time. We, they don't. Uh, you make it up, you craft it as you go. Um, when we were talking about uh, late 19th century cities, uh, Montreal, uh, Quebec City is another example, um, but definitely Kingston, Brockville, York, Perth, all these other little towns in Upper Canada, they're winging it. Yeah, uh, they're, they're totally winging you know, it. They're trying this new thing mm-hmm. called like elections. Uh, it's something, you know, it's not very uh, appealing. Uh, so wh- how do you get a bunch of people uh, together, form a, some sort of consensus around the way forward? And then how do you do it with uh, almost zero money? Uh, how do you do it with almost zero infrastructure? So, you know, there's there's a tough argument to be made for that the city is, yes, trying to impose some certain things, mm. but they're just doing the best they can. Yeah, and you throw with Montreal the, the language and religious divide and uh, geographical, like, spatial divide in the city. So in Montreal, for those that don't know, historically the east end of Montreal has been the French uh, side, and I think, like, the center of Montreal would probably be, like, the English side. And then there's surrounding suburbs that are more Franco, at least at this time in the 1800s. It obviously has changed in the 140 years since. <laughs> um, but I have – so imagine a city that is being built on top of garbage dumps, um, building with no building codes, no plumbing, no electricity, just kind of winging it, Right. Um, I have a, a number of descriptions, but I'll spare you the gory details. I'm just going to read one, and that will sum it up. But imagine a city like Montreal with no plumbing. Mountains of ashes, coal, lobster tins, decaying vegetable matter, manure heaps, and every imaginable kind of filth is deposited in many of these passageways, like the alleys, so as to make them well-nigh impassable. The rapidly melting snow, so this is in springtime, the rapidly melting snow is revealing the refuse of six long months from thousands of human beings. So you just chuck your waste out the window. Let any interested citizen take an afternoon among these winter accumulations, and he will not wonder at the prevalence of diphtheria, typhoid, smallpox, etc. He will see for himself the most glaring illustration of the absolute incapacity of the Board of Health and Sanitary Inspectors. You will see the bylaws of the city violated by 90% of the entire population. So they had rules in place. They had these sort of state structures, but people were like, they didn't have any other choice. Like, what are you going to do? You have to chuck your slop bucket out the window. Yeah. And just because a city has bylaws, just because there is some sort of rule, doesn't mean that it's enforced, as you kind of pointed out with that example. Um, And the inspectorate, uh, particularly in Quebec around those years, is... um, spread extremely thin. Um, you could look at things like the Board of Education expe- Inspectorate. Um, I think there was like three guys to, to, to cover the entire territory. Um, so you get these actors, these historic figures that almost take it upon themselves uh, to enact and enforce some of the regulations maybe, change uh, various other ones. But at each turn, my understanding is that they're operating within a particular type of morality, certain ethical view, right? Um, so I'd be interested to kind of hear what you have to say about, you know, these these certain figures that have propped up that you've mentioned, 
um, going at it on their own almost. Yeah. And like, I feel like the media was trying to find um, corruption and incompetence within city hall. And when you read, like they were meeting every single day, it, uh, they're taking it very seriously. They're forcibly inoculating people, like dragging them out of their homes. They're doing literally everything they could. Um, but it became a sticking point with the French population that we are not going to inoculate. And it was quite evident in the um, mortality rates. Like, they were all concentrated within certain segments of the city, whereas the English-speaking or the affluent communities of Montreal, because it was a rather affluent city, right, for Can- Canadian standards, they were all getting inoculated. But that comes from, like, education, you know? Like, in the sense that, like, they would read... Um, some account from some doctor and maybe say like, oh, inoculation is the thing to do because it's the smart thing to do, right? And quickly it became this French versus English. The French are uneducated, unsanitary, down in their squalorous little East End there. And the English are the Protestants are these educated, progressive, uh, future-looking people who are willing to take this risk, right? And if it wasn't for these French people. And then there you get like a racial, ethnic sort of divide in the city and it's just another way that that city is still divided in some ways i don't think it is as much anymore like i've yeah anyway that's it for later (laughs) yeah you know the french english uh divide particularly in montreal and quebec um has many many different facets and it's it's a fire that's fueled i think um by a lot of, of different things religion being one of them particularly in the late 1880s um, city council being run principally by Anglophones mm. uh, didn't help fuel that and, fire. And that's a big factor in this story is, um, um, and I'm glad you said that, that city hall has always traditionally been controlled by um, Anglos. And um, that was another reason why they're suspicious of a state sponsored or city sponsored vaccination campaign. I have a, um, I guess this would be considered an op-ed, but it's more like an attack piece on Quebec. So, Hold on to your Yankees hat there, Phil. This is um, out there. Uh, This comes from um, the news, um, a Toronto paper, the evening news, in 1885, May. um, And it's called French Aggression. Okay. Ontario is proud of being loyal to England. Quebec is proud of being loyal to 16th century France. Ontario pays about three-fifths of Canada's taxes, fights all the battles of provincial rights, sends nine-tenths of soldiers to fight the rebels, and gets sat upon by Quebec for her pains. Quebec has been extravagant, corrupt, venal, whenever she could with other people's money and has done nothing for herself or the progress of her own earnings. Quebec now gets the pie. Ontario gets the mush. And so on and so on. And it's actually like, I'm just flipping the book around. It's like, it goes on. Yeah. And these, like, that's obviously like 1800s news, like, well, it's the same media for of... you, but that's the sentiment there. Yeah. It's and... like, the sentiment in Canada, for those who don't know, is that Quebec, like, takes like from all the other provinces and doesn't do anything almost. And then Quebec, obviously, as anyone would, is like, well, screw you. Like, I'm angry, <laughs> you know? And then that's how this divide happens. And it goes way back, apparently, into the 1800s. Yeah, and it's the same sort of arguments that are being put forward today. It's the have and have not uh, mm. cities or towns or whatever. Um, but if you look even at the arguments uh, or the debates in Upper Canada at the time, uh, lots of cities like Kingston uh, were having having it out with uh, bigger cities like York, for example. 
Uh, York would get all the money uh, from uh, home district to build mm-hmm. uh, forts or to um, build, um, you know, better transportation. Uh, but Kingston wouldn't, you know. So there were strategic decisions that were made mm-hmm. from the home district office um, during these these periods. Um, that facilitated uh, the expansion of some cities mm. um, at the peril of others. And some of those remnants are still found today. Um, you know, the the road, just the, the infrastructure in and around Montreal, in and around Toronto was developed out of the need to travel to those centers. Mm. And they became centers of um, decision-making. They became centers of uh, power. They became those centers for what became a centralized state. And it's interesting. I think I never thought of this before. And that's why I love this podcast and talking with you, Phil, because you make me think of things I never thought of. But it's interesting in Canada because we have such a small population. We can like kind of design and designate these different cities for different purposes, right? Like Kingston nowadays is like, we think of it as the place with the prisons, right? (laughs) Like it's like the prison town. But, you know, Vancouver is the West Coast, like open to the Asian markets town. Toronto is the financial hub. Montreal is the culture, Quebec City is the history, and so is Halifax and so on. We have these designated cities now. Um, but I think what um, Michael Bliss was saying in this book is that Montreal, especially in the late 1800s, was trying to position itself as this cosmopolitan city where English and French um, peoples uh, cohabitate and work together and play together. And um, the whole book kicks off with a winterlude celebration at the end of 1884. And the idea is that that was the first outbreak of smallpox. That's when it started. And it was bringing people together in these large festivities, these public gatherings that really spread the disease. So they had, so winterlude in Quebec um, and now in Ottawa as well is like quite a tourist attraction for some people. I don't really get it, but it's it's a tourist attraction. I went to Quebec City last year for Winterlude, and it was re- very, very cold. But um, um, people, yeah, you toboggan, you build snowmen, you eat snow cones, like all this sort of stuff. Um, but um, the Catholic um, um, population of Quebec, and they're not all French speakers, like Catholics are English speakers as well. Um, but they would, especially during this outbreak, hold processions through the streets of thousands, thousands, and tens of thousands of people um, to kind of stave off the spread of the disease. But by holding these processions, um, they actually help to spread the disease itself. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, just to come back to your point about how uh, these towns have been used historically, we can't forget that one of the first sessions of Parliament uh, was held in Kingston, uh, so not Ottawa, uh, we, we and we should also need to remember that you know the second parliament of 1849 was held in Montreal, uh, and this um, you know alongside rebellions and all these sorts of things, um, Toronto had uh, its seat uh, was the seat of parliament as well before moving to Quebec City, um, and then the capital developing into Ottawa. So you know th- there are particular reasons why cities develop in certain ways and at particular times when something like an outbreak of smallpox or something like an outbreak of cholera fundamentally shift um, the designs behind where things are to be used and how they're to be used right so smallpox um, represents something bigger uh, in the formation of the state Mm. uh, and in the execution of state power 
than simply an epidemic. Yeah. I, I think that's the point that I'm yeah. trying to, to yeah. get across. Yeah, it, it's like epidemics are constructive in some ways because you see afterwards they have um, public hospitals because um, when the outbreak happened, it was just religious uh, institutions that ran like sanitariums and things. Um, but afterwards, they started to have like city funded and then provincially funded medical institutions. Um, obviously, they improved the sewage. Um, some would disagree if they live in Montreal right now, but, uh, um, you know, they created infrastructure like this to stave it off in the future. But the double-edged sword is, is when you stave off a epidemic at the time, at the moment, and it doesn't come back for a few years, then all of a sudden people get lax with these sorts of measures and then people are starting to throw their slot buckets up the window again, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, the, I think the easy kind of, uh, finger pointing goes to that, you know, there's a segment of the population who are stupid, who are uneducated, who are dirty, who are just always going to throw their shit out the window, sometimes literally. Um, but I think there's a much more refined sort of way of understanding that. And that really has to do with the limits of bu bureaucratic uh, reach, the limits of uh, being governed uh, by these sorts of institutions, right? Yeah, for sure. And as you said earlier, the city hall was normally Anglo-driven. So you're sending these health inspectors and police officers into French quarters who don't speak French. And they're just coming with like some warning sign that's written in French. And you're just like, uh, you, the local grocer that everybody knows and loves, get out of here. And there's like one famous example of this grocer who defied the ordinance and remained open, even though he had smallpox in his family. Um, and he, one health officer said that he did more to spread the disease than anyone else in Montreal. Right. Yeah. Really? And it was because some asshole who doesn't speak French, like some asshole like me, basically, who's only a pure Anglo going in there, excuse me, sir, uh, bonjour, um, je m'appelle Matthew from De Health Inspector, Le, uh, I've got to take your children away. Right. Like, what the hell would you yeah. do? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, um, and there's a myriad of examples yeah. like that in, in the thing. But yeah, it's like, what would you do? It's like yeah. a real human thing. And that's what I actually wanted to kind of get at is the emotions of it, the fear and the suspicion and the anxiety that permeated the city. But then also other things were happening and it became like sixth page news or seventh page news or something like this. And, you know, they, they had, um, um, what's his name? Uh, the Wild West show, uh, Buffalo Bill. It's Wild West show came. There was a circus that came with a menagerie. That these public events that still were held that year that everybody came out for. And these things are like there was no television, man. There's like forty thousand people out because there's nothing else to do. Right. So yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're just like incubating diseases because. And then there's the tourist season in summer. Everybody would come up from like upstate New York. So um, in the summer there was actually a quarantine placed on the city by America. Not Montreal. Montreal was quarantined by America. Wow. Yeah. So people would go up to Montreal for visits and then they would come back to like Rochester or something like this and they wouldn't be allowed in the city. Mm. And they'd be like, well, you've been to Montreal. You're you clearly have contaminated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like this suspicion, not only of people coming to Montreal from the outside who might bring more waves of smallpox, but it's also people who are leaving who have this like stink of Montreal on them. And that is awful for tourism. Yeah. And I think the ways in which we govern and regulate how people move. So the movement of people, mm -hmm. um, gets developed 
precisely through outbreaks mm. such as this. And quarantines are important, right? Like you need a quarantine if you have an outbreak of an epidemic. And the real like reason why it kept spreading is that people were defying the quarantine. There was that. And then there was also just no infrastructure for it. Like they didn't have any hospitals. There was like two um, Catholic run, maybe they're nuns. Yeah. So Catholic run uh, health institutions. I can't remember the names right now, um, but they were filled to capacity, like almost immediately. I bet. Um, yeah. So people in their homes had to care for loved ones, but then the state is saying, we need to take your loved ones away. And then the state is like, oh wait, we have nowhere to put them. So you just have people like dropping dead in the streets. That's not uh, good for tourists either. No, it wouldn't be. It really <laughs> and that's be. where it came down a lot is like the powers that be in City Hall, they were really concerned about tourism because it was the engine. Source and, of revenue. Yeah. yeah, and Montreal is Montreal has always been one of our show cities. It's like one of these show cities. It's like our cultural center. Like we're really, I think as Canadians, we're generally proud of Montreal. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's just me. I, I think Montreal's a cool city. Most people know Montreal as well. It's, an, it's, a, it's a global city. Right. Yeah, yeah. And at this time, it was definitely a continental city that people travel to for, on vacations because it's like, oh, we can go, whatever, eat some good restaurants and have some cheap wine, which you right. do now anyway in Montreal. <laughs> um, so, Matt, you've uh, given us a lot to think about here um, from the politics of language, uh, the discursive ways in which we separate people, the actual physical ways in which state and municipal power can. Uh, separate and quarantine and physically move, uh, the ways in which uh, epidemics spread, uh, you've touched on. Uh, you talked about vaccinations, anti-vaccinations. You, you, you've you covered a lot of ground in your example. Do you have um, kind of, I'm going to give you the last word uh, before we shut down the, the segment, but uh, what's the last thing you want to tell us about this? What I think is interesting about this story is that if you dig down deeper below the level of the city politics or the wider racial or ethnic politics, you see through these newspaper accounts and um, Michael Bliss's amazing book called The Plague again, um, you see these real life accounts of people losing loved ones and children and being afraid to talk to their neighbors. And um, I don't know, it's, it's the emotions that I really love about history. And I think that's how history should be taught. Well, it sounds like a really well-written book if it conveyed uh, the emotional atmosphere of Montreal in uh, 1885. Um, thank you, Matt. That, 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 was, that, that was good. I enjoyed that. Um, if you have questions for Matt or if you feel like Matt got something wrong and uh, needs to address it, uh, send us a, a – you can, you can contact us in several ways. So one of them is on Twitter, and we are at the underscore SIM underscore POD. Uh, you can send us an email. That's uh, semi-intellectual at gmail.com. You can go to our website, thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hear from you. So give us a rating. Give us a review. Something new, uh, Matt, I don't know if you know, but I did this on the website. There is now a section uh, on the uh, thesim.podbean.com website that is corrections and additions. Oh, uh, so we okay. already have our first one up. Yeah, I'll have um, some more for that, I think. We I'll might have some more. But yeah. if you have corrections or additions, email us, semi-intellectual at gmail.com. We'll be glad to put them up. Uh, we'll be, you know, we don't know everything. We try our best. Uh, some of our sources might be off. We might be off. We might have misspoke. 
Mm. I think that's uh, what. Uh, yeah, how I we misspoke say it. a few times. Misspoke. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and we'll get better too. I'll get better. That was the first run. It was I, good. We want to do more histories like yeah. this. Well, yeah. for the three people listening. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. no, was good. <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna take a break. All right. Hey everyone, Matt and I are back. We have some recommendations for you. Um, Matt, um, it's been, it's, it's patio weather. We're going to barbecue later. What do you recommend to go with uh, a good hot dog or hamburger? Of course, I'd probably be sitting out there listening to a podcast, but I'll spare you all with another podcast recommendation. Uh, we're going to recommend a beverage today. Um, it's a beer I've been enjoying for the last number of years, ever since I found it. Um, might be only available in Ontario, but we'll see. It's called uh, Buzz Beer. It's by Cool Brewery, so C-O-O-L. Um, kind of an awful name, uh, but they're down in uh, Toronto. Um, Buzz Beer comes in four packs, which is great, so it's nice and cheap. Um, and uh, I like the um, the one made with hemp. It's like an amber lager, but it's really crisp and um, and dry. Um, it's my favorite, like, all-season beer. Like, you can have, uh, and it's rare that you find an amber that you can kind of have out in the direct sunlight, you know. So, yeah, that's one of mine. So, uh, from Matt's beer, um, I actually have two recommendations. Uh, they kind of go hand-in-hand, hand, I think. Uh, the first one is a book... Um, it's an interview by Roger Chartier, who interviews Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, the book is The Sociologist and the Historian, um, although I'm not sure which one's which. They, <laughs> they both kind of play that role. Um, really interesting. The, the interview happened in 1988, but the book uh, has just been released. Um, I, like, you know, I got this a couple weeks ago. Um, I guess it was published in 2015, but I had a hard time getting a hold of it. Well, it's rare that you get like these new Bordeaux, right? Well, well, that's just it. This one uh, is published by Polity. Um, takes the form of an interview style, so the the book isn't very thick. But oh boy, do they cover a lot of ground! Oh, uh, they go through Bordeaux's kind of key tenets, but also uh, you know how Bordeaux sees history, the the need for history, how history is practiced. Um, so I highly recommend that. That's the sociologist and the historian. Would you, um, would you recommend that for like a primer before like delving into the sea that is Bourdieu? You know, I get that question a lot. How, how do you open up Bourdieu? Where do you start? There is really no good starting place for Bourdieu. I feel like you need to jump into it. Uh, and eventually over the course of your reading experience with him, things are going to start to click. He doesn't do as good a job as some uh, contemporary writers of explaining where he's going with concepts. So you get the you get the gist of it if you read one. Mm -hmm. You get a little bit more if you read two or three. So, you know... You just have to kind of go with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think uh, where I started with it, with Boldzier, was his work uh, Distinction, uh, okay. which gave me, like, you know, kind of a, a glimpse into how... Um, how he writes, uh, but also the sort of where the, these ideas are coming from. Um, so yeah, but um, if you wanted to use this as a as a primer, you could. Mm -hmm. But if you also want to use it 
to understand Bulgir a bit better. Kind of revisit, Excellent. yeah. Yeah, and it's not very long, so. Yeah. I might um, actually borrow that if you're not reading it right now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my second recommendation, this is why they kind of go together, uh, with Matt's and the Bulldozer. I am going to recommend a whiskey. Now. I need a new whiskey, man. Well, my, the, okay. mine has increased in price $25 in the last like four years. Well, so, so have mine. Um, Ugh. now there are a we lot, fine taste. there are a lot of good <laughs> whiskeys out there. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be recommending something that you've never tasted before. Um, however, I do find that for some reason, the stock that is out is just exceptional. And that's the Glenlivet 12 single malt. Really? Um, I don't know why, but, you know, Glenlivet's I've been drinking eh, maybe for 10, 12, yeah, 13 it, years. it's a great standard sort of scotch. Like, you can get it at a bar and, like, it's going to be tasty it's, and stuff. You yeah. know you're going to get something good with it. I'm a Glenlivet guy. Now, the last bottle I bought was maybe five or six years ago. And that lasted me about a year, year and a half. And I, I, you know, I, I was adventurous. Seriously, I got into seriously. It lasted you a year, a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. really. Well, I have bottles like, of scotch do not last in my cupboard. Well, when you go one for one, but yeah. I usually have four or five on the go. So, uh, so, um, so anyway, tip for a um, listener. <laughs> so uh, last December, January, somewhere around that, they had this thing on sale. Twelve years. I said, oh, you know what? I'll just get it. I did. I hadn't cracked it open. I cracked it open last week, and oh my god, mm. it is delicious. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they did different, but I guess uh, since the last time I bought a bottle, it's just been a really good uh, season for making whiskey. Just to let you know, Phil, I take my scotch with a single ice cube made out of distilled water. Yeah, um, Matt, you can find the distilled water right up over by the, you know where to find the distilled <laughs> You sit on a natural spring, come on. Get out of here. <laughs> All right, uh, I think that's a wrap for the show. If you've liked anything that we've said please subscribe please give us a rating and review um if you want to get into contact with us you can do so uh, on twitter we are at the simpod that's the underscore sim underscore pod you can send us an email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com our website is the sim.podbean.com we are on itunes stitcher other podcatcher apps and websites and all that good stuff please listen um give us your comments the more input that we get from you the better these shows will be um, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. Check you later.